He had a sister who was a fruit and veg stall holder. She was mango. <laughs> and he had an uncle who was a ballroom dancer. Can you guess what he was called? <laughs> he was called Tango. There's a few others. <laughs> You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hello and welcome to The Occupational Philosophers, a not-so-serious business podcast designed to spark your creativity, curiosity and imagination. And Simon, hello to you. How are you? I'm good, John. How are you? (laughs) All good here. Shall we start as ever with what's been catching our eye this past week or so? What's caught your eye? An interesting story, and this is from your part of the world as well. And this is calls for Leicester, the city of Leicester's pork pie roundabout to be renamed amid concern for the city's obesity rates. So, <laughs> okay. So they're going to call it the quinoa roundabout. Yeah, the, the quinoa roundabout. And the PETA, the animal rights group, has called for officials in Leicester to rename the city's pork pie roundabout to promote healthier food, and help the environment. (laughs) (laughs) Peter has said, this is not a pie-in-the-sky request. Eating a varied plant-based diet has been shown to prevent heart disease, diabetes, abdominal fat, and cancer. Vibrant vegan foods also have less saturated fat, fewer calories, and less cholesterol than their meaty counterparts, which are all true. So I was thinking... What could we rename the roundabout? You said quinoa roundabout. Quinoa roundabout, that'll do. I mean, there's other streets then in Leicester better watch out, like Triple Cook Chip Lane. That better watch out. That's (laughs) going to get changed, isn't it? That's going (laughs) to. I think maybe. Hey, kids, look, we're coming up to the Broccoli Forest, the magical (laughs) roundabout Broccoli Forest. Round we go. Yay. Can you count count the florets? (laughs) That's it. Yeah, Dad. I'm sick of seeing the broccoli. Yay! That caught my eye. That's it. Imagine the taxi drivers now. They might be up in arms. What do you mean we've got to learn all these new names? Yeah, take a right of cauliflower close and you'll be right. You'll come out by broccoli roundabout. Lovely. (laughs) I thought this was all meant to end with Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mention that. That's that's not getting any airtime on this (laughs) in this place. (laughs) <laughs> don't mention the b word so um yeah that caught my eye i thought what a funny little story from lester what about you john what's caught your eye <laughs> well from the world of the curious creative and whatnot well i'm excited and deeply curious about what i'm going to find when i go to edinburgh shortly because i'm i've actually found the time finally to get to edinburgh fringe festival never been obviously been at the brighton fringe festival which is the biggest england one but this is the biggest it's obviously the world renowned and so i'm heading up there so a couple of days there very excited and i started then exploring the edinburgh fringe website to see what was on and what i might go and see and we're going to see loads of things as a family so we've got street performers all over that's wonderful stuff Uh, there are 3514 shows that you can search for in the database which is unbelievable. So you have to say... How long does it... I think it's about a month now. I think it's three or four weeks. Okay. It's quite All a long right. time, but okay. nonetheless, you you wouldn't be able to see everything. It's a lot of shows. Again, yeah. <laughs> you've got to use the filter in a very discerning way. Okay. So I started then just... I got curious about filtering. 
So I filtered three and a half thousand shows. I was trying to see if I could find a show in a category of one, but I couldn't. <laughs> but I did find out that of those 3,514 shows, only 580 were suitable for 18 plus adults. <laughs> so that's a lot of shows that are not suitable. <laughs> Oh, no, that's a lot of shows that are suitable for families and kids. There's not many that go into the the dark realms of 18+. And of those ones that are only suitable for adults, 12 of those had uh, clowns in them. (laughs) (laughs) So there's some, I don't know, rude, terrifying clowns, 12 of them, roaming around Edinburgh with their own show. So there you go. I'm going to go and find out the uh, over-18 clown shows. <laughs> We're the clowns who tell it like it is, yeah? <laughs> Do I look like I'm crying? No, fan- yeah. <laughs> Funny know. thing with clowns, though, our kids have grown up scared of scared, scared. <laughs> scared of clowns. <laughs> oh, I'd be scared of clowns, especially if they come from the West Country. <laughs> so, but all, all my kids have grown up with murderous clowns. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. They, yeah, they, they, they clown. They freak. They freak out. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's genuinely terrifying, now, aren't they? Yeah, they've been characterised yeah. in so many ways. Like you say, was it? It was the big one, wasn't it? That was the that was the big uh, film that Pennywise the clown. Yeah, no, no, they are terrifying. So there you go. So there's twelve shows up there that have that genre. Terrifying clown. Terrifying clown. Okay. So I shall uh, seek, find, and report back. I look forward to hearing all of this because I'm sure you'll come back. Good luck going up there with a occupational philosopher's podcast to think about as well, because it messes with your mind. Because everything you look at, oh, what about this? What can I talk about this? What I about this? Sh- so, I go find I'll some l- guests and see if I can get a murderous clown to come and join us. I shall look forward to hearing those when you come back. So, hey, today's show. What's it all about, Simon? I think you've got a theme for us to explore. I've got a little bit of a theme and it's building on some of our other themes when I go something along the lines of Frida Kahlo, Picasso and Andy Warhol walk into a bar. Now, funnily enough, even though we're a not so serious business podcast, those art based episodes are some of our most popular, John. So I've always planned to, you know, do a few more because I like exploring them, but this one was based on when I went to the MoMA Gallery in New York, so the Museum of Modern Art, so a pretty awesome collection of stuff. And just seeing there was some like awe around a couple of artists. And so just I thought we'd dive into those artists because around their artworks just packed, absolutely packed. And that was the one which most people stayed at and lingered longest and that type of thing. So I thought we'd dive into a couple of those and see what their story was about, where their creativity come from, what they were interested in. Most importantly, what can we learn? What can we take from them back in the business world in a maybe not so serious way? Sounds good. John, let's let's dive in. Let's kick it off. When I say the word mad artist, who comes to mind? Aside to Kanye West. (laughs) Ah, yeah. (laughs) Modern day mad artists. (laughs) Pre-2008. Okay. Well, I think I would be drawn to someone like uh, Vincent van Gogh. So exactly. When you think the word mad artist, that's when most people go to. Yeah. However, he's the one that we're probably one of the artists we're most fascinated with and probably a couple of other myths have poked out of his sort of uh, poked out, it's not the right word, have come out of his his life and his work that we start to uh, think about. But look, I want to talk a little bit more 
just about his background first and we'll go into a little bit more about his life. So Simon, do you want to kick off then Van Gogh, maybe a little bit about his background first? Where did he come from and how did he get to where he was? Well, I want to rename him hashtag Vinny Van Gogo. It's like a bit more of a modern name or our main man Vinny, as we like to. But look, I want to focus on his early life. You know, there's certain aspects of his life that get focused on. So I want to go back to the early days just to give it. And I've discovered so much researching for this episode. So as most people know, he is Dutch. He was a quiet, self-contained young man. And he used to spend a lot of his free time wandering in the countryside to observe nature. So he's curious. I think that's a good thing to uh, take on. Now, we often talk around sliding door moments and different things. When he was 16, he went to work for an auction house in London and via an uncle. And this is when he started to grow his interest in art. And he also went to London and also Paris. So he started to open his eyes to the world around him and live in different cities. And this is back in, you know, 1870, around about that time. To travel back then was a little bit harder than it was now. He didn't really like the art trading game as such. But then here a theme which comes through his stuff a little bit. His approach to life darkened when his love was rejected by a London girl in 1874. So his burning desire for human affection thwarted, he became increasingly solitary. And we know later on in his life, he had, I guess, issues or um, challenges with mental health and also self-image and self-respect. So you can see these little things start to play off against each other. Mm. Now, but he also did a bunch more interesting things as well. He worked as a language teacher a lay preacher in England, worked for a bookseller back in the Netherlands. But I like this bit, and I've never heard this. Impelled by a longing to serve humanity, he envisaged entering the ministry and took up theology. Ah, okay. Now, have a guess. How do you think this worked out? <laughs> like on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being awful, 10 being Excellent. Where do you think he was? It's <laughs> a so slightly, leading, slightly leading question. I feel that it's tending towards the zero, Simon. Yeah, Vinnie <laughs> Van Gogo. It didn't work out that well, but over a couple of reasons. He clashed with the ministry over their very orthodox position, so they're interpreting things too literally. And he then, though, when he did missionary work and impoverished population in a coal mining region in southwestern Belgium, but then he experienced his first great spiritual crisis in his life. Living away among the poor, he gave away all his worldly goods in an impassioned moment. But then he was dismissed by the church for following the Bible too literally. So I think I got this wrong before. Yeah. <laughs> so he clashed with the ministry over their orthodox approach. No, this is right. They were too literal. But then because he gave away all his worldly goods, they said, no, now you're too literal. You can't yeah. be part of the church because, you know, the church liked to hang on to a bit of dosh back <laughs> then. So this theme of sort of rejection as well started to pop up in his life. Now, you see how these things are starting to intertwine, but this is what I really like. Penniless and feeling that his faith was destroyed, he sank into despair and withdrew from everyone. I don't like that bit, okay, that's coming. And he said, they think I'm a madman because I wanted to be a true Christian. They turned me out like a dog, saying that I was causing a scandal. So, yeah, theme of scandal, but in the arts, hang on to that notion of scandal, okay, because there's okay. something scandalous about his work. 
But then here's what I like. And this is what I've sad, discovered. It was then that Van Gogh began to draw seriously, thereby discovering in 1880 his true vocation as an artist. Van Gogh decided that his mission from then on would be to bring consolation to humanity through art. I want to give the wretched a brotherly message. So the wretched where he was working in Belgium. Uh-huh. When I sign my paintings, Vincent, it is one of them. The realisation of his creative powers then restored his self-confidence. Gosh, what a journey. So rejection, scandal, but yes. he held on to the idea that he was there to serve humanity. First trying to do it through the yeah. church and missionary work, but then said, actually, no, I could use art to a similar effect. Wow. Well, interesting, lovely, unusual story, but I think plays in a little bit of this later part of his life, which we hear so much about. And I don't know, just can't, I can't imagine him being a preacher. No. So. Sounds like <laughs> he, was in a, and he, was, <laughs> he was in and out of the job centre quite a bit, wasn't he? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And look, we'll find out a little bit more about that as we cruise through. He did have some ups and downs. And did you know, one of the things you didn't catch in the background there, Simon, that he was from a very large family in the Netherlands, brothers and sisters? Yeah. He had a sister who was a fruit and veg stall holder. She was Mango. (laughs) And he had an uncle who was a ballroom dancer. Can you guess what he was called? (laughs) He was called Tango. There's a few others. Can you tell us more about his art, his style, inspiration, why he was so well renowned and revered in what he produced? Well, funnily enough, renowned and revered post-death rather than during uh-huh. life, which is and this is where this myth from Vincent van Gogh, these myths come out, which are number one myth. All artists are a bit loony or, you know, the tortured artist Mm. comes from Vincent van Gogh. And the other one which often goes around is, oh, you don't become famous till you die. Okay, which is the (laughs) – I said that in a like a (laughs) – I was going to say, that's some renowned Australian artist from from that that period. No, it's often accompanied by, I could paint that shit, sell it for a million dollars. And then, oh, you don't get famous till you die. That's the other one. So you, you can hear a bit of pain in there. <laughs> yeah, he's only sold one painting during his lifetime, but then he is the artist who post his death did become famous. So every other artist almost well-known that we sort of revere has become very, very famous and well-known during their lifetime. Yeah, And, and what's... So it's almost Van Gogh's the, the solitary one outside of that. So. Is there a genre attached to his style of painting? Well, he was. I suppose he was impressionistic to some degree wasn't he yeah well impressionist uh where you you paint outdoors okay and imagine with impressionism so much artwork was done indoors but when you're sitting indoors you're painting from memory or you're painting from a still life or you know often they would do some quick sketches out of outside and then they'll bring the landscape back inside but impressionists started so well hang on the light changes so much so impressionists painted really really quickly and also at the time, given a lot of shit because they were, oh, derided. This is ridiculous, this style of artwork. Art's meant to look like a, a photo. And so Vincent van Gogh got a lot of his 
inspiration from the Impressionists and painting outside, so capturing not only the light but also capturing so much more of those elements which were going on. So a couple of things he was really, really well known for. One, think about his colours, like picture one of his pictures in your mind. What one have you got? Well, I've gone for Starry, Starry Night or Starry Night. Not Starry, yeah, yeah. Starry Night. What, That's the song by Don McLean, isn't it? That's how he starts his song about him. Starry, Starry Night. Yeah. So Starry Night, yes. Okay. Very, very rich, vivid colours. There's the big swirls in it, so it's quite yeah. sort of mesmerising. He's known for these brightly vivid colours. Because he wanted to capture real-life scenes, he used to paint really fast, but then he was also, he was really interested in colour. So the vibrancy of his work is off the hook. And have you ever seen, can you remember his sunflower mm, pictures? In that's the other sort of very famous one as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and essentially that they're all yellow. The whole picture is yellow. There's, there's hardly any other colours in them that aren't yellow. So his ability to create these vivid scenes with just one colour as well, with all these different hues of that colour. Yeah. Is very good. Yeah, because Starry no, it, Night is predominantly blue, isn't it? It's every variant of blue. I think there's there's obviously some starlight in there, but there's a deep, yeah. rich hues of blue that just run through it all. The whites and, and yellows as well, which really make it pop out. Now, as we sort of already said before, he had a lot of influence. He was influenced by Japanese woodcuts, and he was influenced by the Impressionists. They had this real expressive brushwork. And as I said... Painting used to be done as if it was like realism, okay? So almost you couldn't see the brushwork, but he and the Impressionists and a bunch of other artists went the other way and they go, no, we want to embrace the brushwork. We want to embrace that you can see the imperfections, you can see where the, the things were scraped across the canvas. And then he would go so far as to even just squeeze the paint out of the tube onto the canvas. So very much in that abstract type format. And Artists like Jackson Pollock now look at, uh, or Jackson Pollock look back at him and he would swing over his artworks, squirting artwork everywhere while high on absinthe and <laughs> you know, other cool things and whatever just he a, could get his hands just on. Just a normal Saturday night for Jackson. Yeah, yeah. So Starry Starry Night was actually done with a, a palette, like a, a knife. Well, yeah, palette knife, yeah. <laughs> a uh -huh. palette, a knife, yeah, yeah palette knife. So <laughs> that's what they call it. So that a way to put the paint on in a different way as well. In that sense, he was very, very groundbreaking. And why his art at the time, a lot of it didn't take off, was like too far ahead. Like he was an early adopter, okay, which is something you notice with all of these artists who we look at back and revere and some of the ones we've spoken around like Frida Kahlo or Picasso or Salvador Dali. When they first started, they were like, Get out. You're a rule breaker. We don't want you. All that sort of stuff. So, Well, that, that's a common theme that we'll always come back to, I think, in the discussions we have around creativity and curiosity is how often yeah. people are derided and just sort of criticised as they break norms and break rules. But it's a necessary part of that process that actually then it becomes something magical, some creative process that's totally transformed, but with a lot of criticism along the way. There's so much learning there because if, if you break establishment rules, the establishment, whatever that is, and yeah, it's funny to think there's an art establishment because you think that would be the opposite end, but yeah, the establishment will always push back because things are changing. But as we know, what stands still? If you're in change management, Vincent van Gogh should be your poster child. 
really, because yeah. <laughs> although, change is the only constant. Although that picture of him with the sort of bandage on his head, if that was hanging around the office space, that could just bring everyone down a bit, couldn't it? <laughs> it's not the same as a picture of a mountain with a golden eagle soaring over it. We'll come to that, um, the story of the ear soon. I guess one other thing he was really well known for was like the unusual subject of his everyday painting. So sunflowers decaying. Okay. He used to paint outdoor landscapes and scenes of real life, including oh, ordinary people. Uh huh. And early on in his career, and I think it's at the National Gallery, I used to give a talk on it. It's a really dull painting, but it's uh, the potato pickers. So he would, he was out in the field doing an artwork of potato pickers. So up till, you know, not too long before him, maybe sort of 50, 60 years before, the people in paintings were the people who could afford to pay the artist. So very rarely scenes of everyday life, but around everyday life. So <laughs> got a, got my Mate. West Yorkshire accent on today <laughs> and uh, my, Dry Australian. But then around this time as well, there was an interest from artists who start to paint what they saw happening in the world around them. And often when we think around boardrooms, they say it's that your boardroom doesn't reflect the diversity of the people that you sell and the world around you, the organisations, you know, stale, male and pale. You can think about the art world in some sense was very stale, male and pale. And someone like Vincent van Gogh started to go, well, hang on, there's so much beauty and interesting stuff in the world. I want to capture that. And he's got yeah. one called Wheat Fields with Cypress, which is, yeah, actually out on the side of the farm. And he's got the, which is wheat and cypress in the background. And there was something about, he was, I mean, he was so poor, wasn't he, that not making any money, clearly, as you said, he only sold one picture, that that was part reason that he painted himself or he painted ordinary people. He didn't paint models or anything like that because he couldn't afford to pay a model to sit. So you paint himself. He went out and then captured ordinary people because he didn't have to pay them. He even painted over his own canvases sometimes. So there's a thought that there's hidden masterpieces under a masterpiece, which is <laughs> must be well, sending them John, into a spiral in the art this, world. This is a good point. They often, they'll look at artists' canvases, especially, yeah, when they didn't have as much money, like yeah. maybe the Renaissance and you know, Leonardo da Vinci. Around then, I guess when... I know, I'm just guessing here. Paint was a bit more expensive. I'm not sure you'd have a benefactor. They would often paint over their old canvases, as yeah. every modern-day artist would do now. So that's 100% true, and they'll put them through a an X-ray machine, and you'll see all these different layers of previous stuff. So he literally does send art collectors, art theorists, art whoever, into a mind spiral of yeah. joy or despair that this amazing thing has been painted over. Yeah. Now. Last thing he was really well known for, one of the things, his ability to make his artworks move. So think this one, the sunflower one, you can see, you can sort of feel that sunflower move because his brush strokes were very expressive. So we've mentioned this before, but the way he put on was quite brisk, brusque, brisk, sharp. Mm. There's none of those words, but sort of, yeah, expressive. So he pushed on in different directions. And that wheat field with cypress, which I used to give a talk on all the time at the National Gallery, it's, it moves. You see the wheat moving. And because he's got different layers of paint and different thicknesses, so it's very textured. So it jumps out from the picture from you. So look, there's something behind when we look and we go, oh, Vincent Van Gogh, it wasn't just because he was a crazy artist. He was an amazing artist. And probably he was so far ahead of his time 
what I read is he was too much for people to take in at that time. It was only post his death, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, post his death that his work started to realise, looking in the rearview mirror, as happens with all of these artists who were massive disruptors at the time, we start to see, ah, the value in what that person has created. Amazing stuff. Simon, one of the things I'm curious about is I've sometimes heard his name pronounced not Vincent van Gogh, I'm starting already, but Vincent van Gogh with much more of a guttural (laughs) sort of, which might be relevant because obviously he's from Holland. They have some guttural sounds there, but is it Vincent van Gogh or is it Vincent van Gogh? And let's let's resolve this once and for all. I think it might be a little bit from where your language stems from as well. Like if you're, say, you're an Australian, Vincent van Gogh, that's, that's <laughs> all we can do. We can't get any out of that. When I used to work at the gallery a, a lot, because you know, I would obviously speak a little bit of an Australian twang, and <laughs> always talk around Vincent van Gogh or Vincent van Gogh, <laughs> <laughs> depending where you're from. And, <laughs> and so you'd have to say, ah, just... Call something in my eye. Vince van Gogh. <laughs> and someone would always give you, there's two sides of this argument. So I'm not sure which one is which. No, my belief though, it's the more the oh, oh, is the correct. <laughs> oh, that is the, you think it may be. Also, uh, okay. I, be, I, I believe so. But we're yeah, going to say Vincent van Gogh so. because otherwise we won't get to the end of this episode without losing our voices. <laughs> Vince van Gogh. Yeah, oh. exactly. <laughs> I think it finishes off. We were sort of talking about this off-air before. When you think of Vincent, you think of the struggling well, artist. What else do you... Well, I, I think we have to talk to the earophant in the room, Simon. <laughs> hey! <laughs> boom, boom. Hey! <laughs> All right, now. Let's talk about that ear. Where is it now? How much is it worth? Okay. Now, there's a little bit of a story, as there always is. Now, Vincent, he was living in... France, and he found the he was living in Paris. Found the city too much for him. He really loved being out in the countryside, and he was connected with a bunch of different artists. So a bunch of people from the schools of impressionists, and he hoped his friends went down Arles and hoped that his friends would join him and create a new school of art. Paul Gauguin did join him, and Paul Gauguin is the artist who spent a lot of his life, his later life in the Pacific Islands. So you see these Polynesian women. So that's probably what he's most known for. So. Paul Gauguin did join him, but with disastrous results. So (laughs) Vincent's nervous, there's two versions of this story here. Vincent's nervous temperament made him a difficult companion and night-long discussions combined with painting all day undermined his health. Right. Near the end of 1888, an incident led Gauguin to ultimately leave the house and Arles altogether. Vincent van Gogh pursued him with an open razor, but was stopped by Gauguin, but ended up cutting up a portion of his own earlobe off. Vincent, so the story goes, then began to alternate between fits of madness and lucidity and was sent to the asylum in St. Remy for treatment. After apparently giving part of that to a local prostitute, Mm. who was his also on again, off again girlfriend. Now, that's story one. This was on that was on the Vincent Van Gogh gallery website, so the family gallery. Now, okay, I thought you were going to say theory two is he was in a boxing match with Mike Tyson. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A sensational uh, news story emerged saying that 
Vincent van Gogh, deranged Vincent van Gogh, then visited a brothel near his home and delivered the bloody part to a woman named Rachel, telling her guard this object carefully. Giving the ear to a prostitute is apparently open to suggestion. Mm -hmm. But then 21st century art historians Hans Kaufman and Rita Wildegens, however, examined the contemporary police records and the artist's correspondence, and they concluded... Paul Gauguin, who mutilated Van Gogh's ear, and he did so with a sword. So in this altercation, he got out a sword and Vincent Van Gogh was hospitalised. Paul Gauguin left for Paris. So I don't think we'll ever really know the true thing. But, uh, yeah, there was an ear episode, but apparently giving it to his girlfriend was possibly not so true. Yeah. It's not a typical gift, is it, part of your ear? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe it's one of those anniversary gifts. Maybe 13 years together is ear. <laughs> At least he wasn't saying, like, yes. I'm going to keep an eye on you. Can you look after this one? <laughs> Dear me. Dear me. So uh, it sounds like a duel erupted between Gauguin and, and Van Gogh in this uh, second yeah, theory. Uh, this second, uh, yeah. second uh, story. And wow, it's very dramatic, isn't it? It's very dramatic. And then you actually see the pictures of him. He's done a lot of self-portraits with his ear bandaged mm. when he was in the hospital afterwards. So that is the story of Van Gogh's ear. So look, Simon, given that he sold one painting in all his lifetime, but he is this most revered of all artists, how did that come about? How did he come to be recognised posthumously? No, post posthumously. I'll start that again. Keep <laughs> <laughs> no, going. Posthumously. Humously. Not humorously. Posthumously. So posthumously. Now, interesting enough, like the his lack of recognition in his lifetime obviously had him very depressed, okay? So it was always one of his thingy. And one of those themes which went back early into his life, that theme of rejection from the girl, the girlfriend, and also the rejection from the church, this theme of rejection kept playing over and over. So it's sort of a sad, well, it is a sad story. And he eventually shot himself in the stomach, I think three weeks after this fight with Gorgan, if I've got this right. Anyway, so... It's a pretty bit of a sad ending. He said, I want, I want to relieve the world of myself because I've contributed nothing. However, Gosh. however, his brother Theo was his greatest benefactor and he was an art dealer in Paris, a very successful art dealer, and he always saw the, the joy in his artwork. So he paid Vincent, kept him uh, afloat to paint. But then unfortunately Theo passed away from oh, not natural courses. I think he had syphilis which is a bad thing back in the day. So he passed away and he left behind his beloved wife, Joe, and their two-year-old son. Now, all of a sudden, Joe was a single mum, but she had a vision. So here's what I like, an entrepreneur, John, with a vision. She saw the beauty, the aesthetics, the amazingness, if that's the right word, of Vincent's work. She picked up about eight to 900 of his works they had in storage, about 700 drawings. She moved to a new town and she opened up a guest house. Now, the guest house was frequented by many writers and many artists. And through these relationships and all these connections she made, she started to be able to promote Vincent's work. 
and her outstanding work as a business person then led to Vincent van Gogh having uh, exhibitions posthumously and people then started saying, oh, holy crap, this guy is really good. So she, he would have been nothing without his amazing sister-in-law, Joe, who then publicised his work on and on and on and it's gone on to be some of the most famous and wealthy works ever to be sold over time. So in 1925, the thing she did though was hang on to the five sunflower artworks. And in 1925, after constant badgering from the National Gallery of London or England, where I work, she sold one to them. She said, this is just to help further his work and keep his work alive. So Vincent would have been nothing posthumously without his amazing sister-in-law and her vision at such a young age and her entrepreneurial and business skills and creating and selling art in that time. Not easy to do what she did. No, a real commercial savviness there that you see. Yeah, absolutely. Latter day artists, whatever. There is always that need to have an eye on something that is artistic, but also commercially viable for them. This has to. Yeah, but I think. Yeah, but that's that's the untold story of this. I think that's one of the great stories of this. He was uh, his sister in law saw the vision and she created something from that. So a nice little lesson there we can learn for uh, well I was we going to say what, for our, what our modern times yeah what are the lessons that we should take from Van Gogh then maybe again coming back to the theme around not so serious business podcast what are some of the things that really stand out for you around Van Gogh that we might contemplate as individuals in particular okay this theme comes through time and time again all of our guests we speak to and all of the people we look at if you put in the work and you put in the time the creativity and the output will come. Mm. So time and time again, he painted and drew furiously, and as such, his style developed and changed over time. If we judge ourselves on the first thing we ever produce and go, okay, I'm not happy with that, we will never go on to create bigger and better things. So Mm. one of those things, uh, I think, yeah, put in the effort, good things will come. Now, something else, John, which comes along all the time, he had varied sources of inspiration. So he sought stimuli. He had a multitude of influences and styles. Like, and he would, you know, the content, like the poor outdoors, he would paint from, you know, being outside and paint quickly. And he also drew from a bunch of different genres of paintings as well. And he lived in a bunch of different places. So he was really open and his sensorial eyes, ears, sounds are all open to the world around him. And the third one, maybe that uh, you mentioned or we touched on it earlier as well, a willingness to break norms, a willingness to experiment as well beyond what was recognised as accepted practice perhaps in, in how you paint for example. Yeah, and that ability to push something out when you know you're at that edge of whatever that edge may be. It might be technology. It might be the way we interact. It might be human resources. It might be when you first push the barrow out, it's really hard. And people looked at his stuff and just thought it's too far out there. It's too far outside the norms. And maybe finally, a good lesson for Van Gogh is don't uh, set up an artist community with someone who's got a sword. <laughs> called Paul. If you and don't get into a fight with them, and don't chase after your CEO after they've left the artist community to try and convince them to come back. Let them go, otherwise you might lose something that's important to you. If your CEO is named Paul and has a nice collection of Japanese samurai swords behind his desk, that's a sign. 
Hey Simon, it wouldn't be a show without one of our thought experiments that we love to explore with our guests and together as well. So I've got some real philosophical questions here to explore mm, in good. absolutely the truest sense of it being a thought experiment, an idea to explore with no definitive answer. Well, there might be. Maybe that's what we're going to find out. So I've got three here I'd like to explore with you. Are you worried? Okay. No, it's just a nice change to have something, a proper thought experiment. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, proper thought experiment. So, although I say that, you haven't heard the statements yet. Okay, all right. Okay. So, I'm ready. Here's number one. If a robot waiter, play along at home, by the way. If a robot yeah. waiter brings you a drink, should you say thank you? Hmm. Mm pondering that one so what does that mm. what does that sort of throw up it's okay so the robot's not human so is it that we only say thank you to someone who's human because that's good manners etiquette so yeah do you say thank you to a robot i mean i instinctively would you know yeah i would as well yeah would but then uh if you didn't would you hurt the robot's diodes or something ah, sure. so, so, see this is it so now you're going so well yeah. how advanced is the robot is it literally just yeah. a sort of uh, drinks tray on wheels with nothing in it because it could be because that could be a robot couldn't you and you do get those a drinks tray comes out and it's a robot it's guided its way through the restaurant and then yeah. has the drinks on top and you take the drinks now i wouldn't say thank you to a drinks trolley Oh, now here's the thing. So, <laughs> but, just get and say, piss off, piss off on your way. Roll on, punk. No, look, not saying thank you is one thing. Starting to insult the robot drinks tray, that's another, that's another level. <laughs> Rusty piece of shit. <laughs> Would you like anything of the drinks trolley, sir? Yes, I'll have the wheels. Uh, I'm gonna, you, you, you're going to the recycling plant if you look at me that way again. So. Ooh, sad robot face. Ooh. Now, <laughs> something on this, there was a, there's a hotel, and I, I read about this for some innovation work, and they were around sort of rapid prototyping. They created a robot that would take you your room service. Ah. And so this is whole, like, all these different ways of doing it. And they found, which goes to maybe the ethos of this argument, they found when they put a human face on the robot, the satisfaction for receiving it from a robot went up by 90, 100% or whatever uh -huh. it may be. So there's something there around we do have human feelings for, or the, no, making the robot human uh -huh. brings around a more visceral experience or and makes you respond so, as if it was another human okay so if we've now got a robot yeah. with a human like face or features on it you would say thank you ugly or not like or what <laughs> that's all in the, all in the eye of the beholder <laughs> if my no, mom, I, let's say I <laughs> you have beautiful wing nuts <laughs> Ooh, saucy <laughs> <laughs> Let's not take that any further. <laughs> I chose the wrong widget on a robot there. Should, you've got a nice LED screen. Why, thank you. Yeah. 
<laughs> I just had it polished. So, <laughs> so, so I'm saying, John, in answer to that, I think I'd say yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. That, so yeah, I'd say with yes. the idea yeah. that this robot is sufficiently advanced that it might feel like it's it has human qualities. Okay. All right. Good. Let's go for yeah thought experiment question number two. Yeah. <laughs> Would you rather live under a democracy or a dictatorship led by Father Christmas? Mm. <laughs> Ponder that one carefully. Now we've got to unpick that, don't we? We say, well, democracy, there. Mm. we have the vote and we can mm. put in place someone that we think will serve our interests and our needs, or we can be led without any say by one of the most benign figures in real history, of, of, in reality, of remember, time. Let's, yeah. in case there's some under 10s listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So think about it, though. You live in, you live in I don't know, Christmas land? What is it? Well, no, I don't know. I mean, you land. could just be living in Australia, but, you know, Father Christmas okay. would be right. dictating everything that happens, So, which could be nice right. stuff, I guess, couldn't it? He might say, right, okay. okay, you have to get a present on Christmas Day. No one will go without or... He might say, I'm going to make it snow every day and you've got no choice in the matter. <laughs> and you, there's a fair sense you've got to work pretty hard like in the six months run up to Christmas. What, so you're thinking he might or, make you work like elves? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, who's going to produce the toys? Oh, okay, I was thinking about it wrong. So you, I think I'm an elf. <laughs> you've turned this into a sort of North Korean version of Lapland where you're yeah, also yeah, that's it. slave labour. <laughs> For Father Christmas in the run-up to Christmas. Okay. Well, there you go. Make. Okay. This is what you need right. to explore. Uh, yeah. No, Actually, it sounds really oh, horrible. So he, yeah, yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought, yeah. What if he turns on you? But I'm thinking he's, uh, no, he brings happiness. He brings joy. He brings good, stable relationship. Yeah, he brings a sense of humanity. So <laughs> He'd be good at trade deals, standard. wouldn't he? What have you got? Well, I got 15 yeah. million wooden train sets. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. What have you got? <laughs> a bag of oranges and 20 billion tons of nuts. Come on, let's do some trade. Yeah, so he'd improve so our standing he, in the world. Yeah, GDP be amazing because he could put the elves to work. You know, we're, <laughs> we need more liquid hydrogen for carbon-free travel. Yes, no, green hydrogen. Green hydrogen, elves. Go. <laughs> it would no? depend on the country as well, though. If you're in Finland, of course, they, they might not like the fact that they couldn't eat reindeer anymore because that would be off the menu, wouldn't True. it? True. Well, it depends. I'm not sure. We eat, we ride horses in Australia, but in France they eat horse. So this is quite deep. Oh, John. I'm it's on balance. If you had have asked me, let's say your previous, no, your current prime minister is Prime Minister still before he resigned, even though yeah. he hasn't resigned. Yeah. What would you choose, Santa or Boris? Got to be Santa. Come on. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> I'd, I, frankly, I'd have a hat stand. <laughs> a hat stand and a jelly bean. <laughs> so I'm thinking I'd give it a run for five years and then we could assess at the end. Santa stays in. But if you're out, there's no like ill no, feeling. Honestly, that's democracy. Well, that, that's yeah, true, true. <laughs> you can't, I'm not sure, John. That's a <laughs> <I can't>. di <laughs> dictatorcy. <laughs> you're, you're blending. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm I, not sure. I, I think I would go for Santa. Yeah, I'm going to go Santa. Yeah. 
I'm going to take my chances. All right, yeah. I'm yeah. going to yeah. I think he knows better than the will of the people. Yeah, yeah. Here's no, the last, yeah, here's he the last one for you then. Okay, yeah. Can a squirrel ever truly be happy? Have you? <laughs> God, have you ever seen a squirrel smile? No, they always look quite nervous and agitated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. They're always working 24-7, yeah. bearing nuts, Scudding. running, yeah. maybe get eaten, eaten by a... Do you not think there's a moment where they're safe and they're sat there with that newly found nut and they sit there and go, ah. Oh, true, true, true that. Or, uh. or do you think that they're going, oh, somebody's coming, somebody's coming, somebody's coming for the nut. <laughs> where are they? I can hear them. I can't see them, but I can hear them. They're coming. Or you're worried about your other stash of nuts. Like you can't yeah. sit and enjoy. So you think, <laughs> I've worked, I've worked oh. hard all summer. What if someone nicks them? Where yeah. did I put them? Oh, no, I've forgotten. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> so I think on Forgetful balance, squirrel squirrels are not happy, no. are they? Anxious, They're not happy. Anxious squirrel. Anxious and tortured. Yeah, <laughs> like Vincent Van Gogh. <laughs> Vincent Van Squirrel. Nah. So we're going to say squirrels can't ever be truly happy. Momentarily happy, but big picture stuff. Unless it's like a Dalai Lama squirrel, you get to one place, he's going, you know, just embrace your nuts. Or something like that. Um, <laughs> that's probably not the right. <laughs> that's probably not the right term, but we'll let that go. <laughs> and that was: Can a squirrel ever truly be happy? Another great philosophical questions from the occupational philosophers. I should just say, Simon, I had great fun exploring those questions, and I wanted to just give. Credit to a chap called Ian Gilbert. He's got a great book out called The Book of Thunks. I think there's a, a follow-up, The Little Book of Thunks, but uh, he has all these wonderful philosophical questions that you can explore in the true nature of being an occupational philosopher. So thanks to Ian, and uh, yeah, maybe we can get him on sometime. That'd be fun. I'd like that, John. I'd like that. So look, just reflecting on our episode today, as we always like to, is there maybe Maybe just we. I was, had two artists in mind, but I think the conversation around Vincent, one of those, it's not polarizing, unifying characters of our time. Like there's such an interest in him and his artwork, and oh, yeah. So, and I think it was really good to explore. And I learned a lot about our Vinnie Van Gogh. What, what stood out maybe about him? What's the your one takeaway? Is, if there's something from it. The one takeaway, if I'm thinking about the Not So Serious Business podcast piece is just that striving just to produce great work, not stopping that persistence, that moving forward, making errors, as it were, but just advancing, advancing, advancing. So sheer effort, persistence, and a absolute compelling need to create that he recognised was at his core. And that's something that we all have. So how we can bring that to personal lives or our work, yeah, and keep at it. Yeah, I like it. And I like the fact that he experimented and even though, you know, unfortunately in his lifetime he didn't get to see the impact he'd made. He was only 37 when he passed away as well. So real 
young, depending on your, your age, where you're you listening. Most of our audience, young guy. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, a young guy. Like, um, but I love the fact that he was. He was so. He was too far ahead of his time. And you might be doing something, and it's okay to push the boundaries out there and try new things. And it might not be till later on that you people start to. You know, we always look back and we go, ah, the people that we. All the, art, especially in the art world, all the artists we revere as the visionaries were all like crazy, crazy rule breakers at the time, like, and almost pushed away by the establishment. So just think that could be true of all of us. Could be a time in the future where they look back and say, do you know what? That Kevin in accounts, he was bloody brilliant, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, the way he did numbers. Oh, God. So, Kev, come on, man. Chin up. Onward. Okay. Kevin Van Gogh. All right. So, now, John, that's the end of the show. That was pretty good. I enjoyed talking about it. I that. very much enjoyed it. I can hear and I could see the passion that you have in exploring his life. As I can see you on the camera here and people hopefully could probably hear it as well. But uh, no, very much enjoyed it. If you enjoyed it, then uh, subscribe, tell your friends, give us a review. You can rate us. You can check us out at the website, occupationalphilosophers.com. Get in touch by fax pigeon or email you can <laughs> what else can they do occupational philosophers at gmail oh uh, yes now here's the thing yes on the reviews there's a lady in brisbane who listens you know who you are you've said oh i laughed so much i snorted like a pig on the train <laughs> listening to one of our episodes and you go i'll write a review still waiting still waiting so if you're listening you know who you are <laughs> in the meantime signing off as ever stay curious play ball, make stuff, have, have fun. fun, and and John, as you're about to do over the week ahead, date life.